Heavenly Father, thank you for this evening. Thank you for your word and the way that it works in our life when we choose to depend upon it to do so. We ask for clarity in those times when we're not sure why things aren't working the way you said they will, that we could understand how we're relying on ourselves or on other things besides you and your word. May we see the process of temptation this evening in a new way, understand how it works and thus decreasing the struggle that comes with temptation when we don't understand the mechanics or principles of it. Thank you for defining this and describing this in your word through James, the brother of Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 13, last week, we identified the principle. This is a truth that will always be true, that God is not the source of temptation or trials. God is not the source of temptation or trials. Now, why do we include trials? Because James 1.13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. So why did we include trials in that? Because the word for tempt and the word for trial, or to be tried, is the same in James. They both identify the same thing. An external situation that is trying to see what you are made of, to test your quality, to see if you are what you appear to be, or what you are declared to be by God. So the principle we learned from verse 13 last week God cannot be tempted by evil, one of them. Evil there we talked about was anything that was inherently worthless. And we identified the reason that it was inherently worthless, has no value in itself, is because it was produced by a counterfeit process. Since it was produced by a counterfeit process, it is also then counterfeit. You remember my story in Ensenada, Mexico with Foakley's and Oakley's. Foakley is a counterfeit. Oakley is a legitimate thing. The process that produces Oakley sunglasses is not the same process that produces Foakley sunglasses. For us, with our production of divine good or spiritual works, good works, we must accomplish them in the right process. And God has laid a process out for us in his word that allows us to do that. If we don't go through that process, we may do something that looks good. It may look to be of value, but it is not because it's a counterfeit work produced by a non-righteous or non-standard process. So when it says God cannot be tempted by evil, it's saying he cannot be tempted by anything that is inherently worthless. He knows what righteousness is. And it is not even within him to be able to be tempted to be able to be tried in his character towards evil. It's not something that will work for him. His character far supersedes it. Now, if we are his children and we are to develop his character in our life, then we are to get to a point where it is not even a temptation for us. And that's a process that takes place, and it starts with understanding the entire process of temptation. That's called spiritual maturity. In, in 1 John 2, 12, we have identified for us four stages of spiritual maturity by John, starting with the bottom stage up to the top. Four stages consisting of, first, the spiritual infant. Then it moves to the spiritual child. This would be for us, the corresponding years would be the toddlers up through the pre-adolescent. 
Then you have the young man in First John 2, 12 and following. The young man identified. And then you have the father identified, or the older man, if you will. These are the four stages of spiritual growth. If you're operating spiritually, you fit into one of these stages while you're operating spiritually. <coughs> now, what John teaches us is that there are certain things that we learn in each different stage. Certain things we learn in each different stage. And if in that stage we are obedient to God and respond to Him, then we learn it, we understand it, we comprehend it, and we move on because we depend upon what God has said and has provided. So the spiritual infant learns about God in His character, who He is, and His promises. Jesus taught about these things in the Gospels. We can see them all throughout Scripture, especially the Old Testament. When we look back and read the Old Testament, we see how God has operated in regards to man and man's sinfulness, in regards to Satan, in regards to different attempts and attacks on his character. So the spiritual infant learns God's character, who God is, and the promises that are available to the believer because they belong to God. Now a long, long time ago, probably six years ago now almost, when we mentioned the idea of promises, we said that the promise is only as good as the character of the one making the promise. I think probably in this room, the only two that would have been here to hear that potentially would be Peterson and Turner. And I don't know if you had heard it, because I don't know if you are there that night. But we said that the promise is only as good as the character of the one making the promise. We also said that a promise is only as good as the ability or power of the one making the promise. I can promise to give you a million bucks at the end of this night. But I don't have the ability to do that because I don't have a million dollars. So just because there's a promise and just because I want to do it doesn't mean I can. So you've got to have the ability to do it and you've got to have the character to support the promise. If you can't trust the person telling you what they're telling you, it's not any good what they say. If you can't depend upon who they are and trust that, then the promise means nothing. This is kind of why promises exist, if you think about it. Because if someone says, hey, I'll do this for you, and you have to ask, you promise? What are you saying? That you're not really sure that what they said they would do, they'll actually do, so you're trying to firm it up in your head. James 5.12 says, do not swear or make an oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no. Let your word stand for what it is. We shouldn't have to make promises to prove to someone that we're trustworthy or get them to believe that we're trustworthy. We should be able to say, yeah, I'll do that. No, I won't do that. Yeah, I can provide that or no, I can't. And they should know it right away because of our integrity. That integrity should be defined as we learn more about who God is and let his character develop into us through the fruit of the Spirit. So the spiritual infant learns about God's character, who he is, and his promises, what he's provided for us as his children. From that point, the spiritual child learns the processes and protocols. You can call this the family rules. Processes and protocols. How the family operates, how God operates, how the children of God operate. The mechanics or the processes behind the scenes that take place so that God's children produce spiritual works 
rather than human or fleshly works. The same action can be righteous or unrighteous. It's not about the action. It's about the process that produces that action. Are we dependent upon God? Are we operating under the control and leadership of the Holy Spirit, leading our human spirit? Or are we de dependent upon ourselves? Are we leading ourselves? Are we producing it from our own strengths and abilities? The process makes a difference. The end result, it may look like an Oakley, but if it's not actually produced by the process by which Oakleys are produced, it's not a legitimate Oakley. It may look like a righteous deed, but unless it's produced by a righteous process, it's not a righteous deed. In the spiritual child stage of maturity, we learn the family rules, how God expects his children to operate. And as we become obedient with those things and develop them, we get to the place where we're dealing with in this passage right now a victorious win over Satan and company. The young man is overwhelmingly victorious, the young adult spiritually is overwhelmingly victorious against Satan and company's wiles and attacks. doesn't mean that we have to struggle with it. It means that when a, oh, an attack or a temptation pops up, it's instantly struck down in an overwhelming defeat. That's what this stage identifies. That when you get here, when you are a young man spiritually, when you're a young adult spiritually, that because you know God and his promises, because you know the family rules, you utilize your trust in who God is to carry out the process, as he says, to be victorious over Satan and company reflexively. Meaning, when, it, when something pops up from Satan and company, it's immediately struck down. It's a reflex. It's not a matter of choice or forcing the process. See, the process comes back down to here. You learn that here in the spiritual child state, spiritual stage of maturity. Once you do that and get, and get to this stage and get through this stage, you learn about Jesus as Lord and Master. Instead of down here, you learn about him as the Savior. You depended upon him to be your Savior. And what does that do? Spiritual birth. You're a spiritual infant. Four stages of spiritual maturity. It's in 1 John 2, 12 and following. We're looking at a process that God says takes place that takes us out of fellowship with him and into carnality. Fellowship with God means you are operating in a right relationship with him. You have complete and total right relationship with God. Everything about you is right with God. Not one thing, not two things, everything. And it starts with recognizing the role that God the Father plays. We can't have fellowship with the Father if we don't identify Him as the one who is to provide all of, we, all of what we need to us. He is the initiator. He says, I give to you. You then are to receive and respond to what He gives, not to take for yourself. When you take for yourself, you are saying, I am the initiator. God's children are the responders. God gives, we receive. The way this works, simple analogy. So you go over to your friend's house for dinner. They've put on the table a feast, a lot of food provided for you to just enjoy and eat and have your fill of. You sit down at the table, you look at all the food, and you go, wow, that food looks amazing. 
You guys pray to thank God for the meal, and then you get up, and instead of eating the food that they put on the table, you go to the refrigerator, and you make yourself something to eat. This is the idea. When we're in right relationship with God, God's providing the feast on the table for us. He's giving us everything we need to do what he's asking us to do. And we're taking from what he gives us. We're receiving what he's giving us. But when we choose to initiate or lead ourselves, what we're doing is we're ignoring what he's provided for us on the table. We're leaving to go to the kitchen and take from what he will allow us in his house instead of what he directly gives us. If you want to look at it in terms of salvation, something we all understand if we've accepted Christ as our Savior, God provided for us a Messiah. We can try, and we will ultimately fail, to earn our way to heaven. We can try to buy our way into heaven. We can try to create our own heaven, but we will fail because we don't have the power, nor do we have the authority to say, no, your way of salvation is good for some, but mine is good for me. We don't have that authority. We don't have that power. We don't know what we're talking about. God provided one way. You receive what he provided and respond to what he gives, or you reject it. If you respond to what he gives, then the result is salvation. And then you're entered into a relationship with him. One in which you are his child. Children are supposed to obey their parents, responding to their leadership and authority. When Jesus was on earth, he made the statement, I have done nothing of my own initiative. What the Father has given to me is what I have done. What God set up for Jesus to do was to, rep to propitiate the sins of all of humanity. And he provided everything that Jesus needed along the way. Jesus did not take for himself anything apart from what God was giving him. He received and responded to God's leadership every single second of the day. We are to walk in the same manner as Jesus once we're saved. That's complete fellowship with God. If we do anything that is not directly responding to God, then we are leaving fellowship with him. If we say, no, God, I appreciate all you've given me in this relationship I have with you, but I am going to, at this point, step out on my own, and I'm going to initiate to myself. What are we, in essence, saying? That we are God. See how that works? If we say, no, God, you know all things, you are love, you're completely in authority over all things, but I'm going to choose, instead of letting you be the authority of my life, or in this moment, I'm going to choose to go and be the authority for myself. What are we saying? We are challenging God for his own leadership and for his rightful authority. Who else do we know that did that? Lucifer. We may think that we're very skilled in doing God's will. We may think that we're good at doing what God calls us to do, reading the Bible, praying, going to church, ministering the gospel even being nice to those around us, loving those around us, but we cannot do it from our own strength. If we say, God, you take the day, I'll, I'll go do what you want me to do on my own today, and I'll, I appreciate all you provide for me, but today I'm going to give you a break. Not only are we greatly dumb and borderline stupid to think like that, moronic we'll call it. that's the Greek word, it's, it's biblical. Not only are we moronic, but we are challenging God's authority. 
You went like this, and your parents, and your relationship. If your parent says, I want you to turn your lights off at 9.30 at night, and you say, okay, and then 9.30 rolls around and your lights stay on, what have you done? Even if you forgot, even if you weren't paying attention, even if there's a, isn't a clock in your room, you have challenged their authority. Even if it wasn't a direct rebellious act saying, nope, not going to do it, I'm going to do what I want. It's about doing and obeying what God says in the right way, responding directly to Him. Now, here's why we're setting that up. A right relationship with God is where God is initiating, we're responding because we trust Him and His character, we trust that the processes He says to do things in will result in His glorification and what's best for us because of His love for us. And so we respond to Him, so we're in a right relationship with God, and then we get to James 1, verse 14. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. This word, each one, means each and every. Every single one of us in this room is tempted in this process. This is the process. This is a principle. See, when we look at God's word, we look at direct statements from God. Some are commands, do this, don't do this. And others reveal to us principles of, th- of how things work, how they operate. We call these the mechanics. Understand how when situation A pops up, situation B goes into effect, and the, the way it all works together. So we're learning here the process, the mechanics of temptation. Each and every one of us is going to be tempted and has been tempted. And we're all tempted by the same process, not with the same bait, but with the same process. Temptation, again, is learning, trying to learn, trying to prove or test the character or quality of something. Now in James 1, 2 through 4, what was being tested? Faith, your dependency. What are you going to depend upon? What are you depending upon? Situation pops up, you depend upon your human viewpoint? Your own solutions, or do you depend upon God's solutions? Well, if you don't advance beyond spiritual infancy to spiritual childhood, you're not going to have a solution for that process, which is why James 1.5 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, and he will give to you without reproach. The understanding of the word wisdom there identifies that you have knowledge, but you're not sure how to use it. If you don't have the knowledge, you can't ask for that wisdom. You need to learn the knowledge. How do you do that? You confess your sin and you go to Bible class. Go to Bible study. Let the Holy Spirit teach you God's word. Each and every one of us is tempted, trying to, is tried to learn our character when this occurs. Now here's the process. It's two steps. Carried away. Exile kamenos. To drag out by force For the purpose of making a decision. It starts with that phrase, to drag out by force. 
Something forcibly drags us out. And this is in the passive voice in Koine Greek, meaning that we are acted upon. Something grabs us and drags us. And we can dig our heels in, or we can go limp and let it drag our dead body weight, but it is dragging and pulling us out from somewhere to the point of somewhere else. This is how it works. Something shiny outside of fellowship with God, outside of what God has provided us, catches the attention of our individual lust pattern. You want a daily life example of this? Walk into Costco, okay, with one thing in mind to purchase. Doesn't matter what it is. Milk, cheese, waffles, jerky, doesn't matter. Pick something. Go in there and see how many things catch your eye along the way to that one thing. Now, you guys could pull it off to go right there, get it in right out. You could. Self-discipline makes that work. But that's not really what happens when you go into Costco, is it? Specifically because the very first place you walk in, what do you see? Huge TVs. And what do they have on them? Penguins. <laughs> Oftentimes, or birds, or snow, or whatever the picture is. So not only do you have this big TV that's cool, you have now whatever is beautifully displayed on it. And there's like 30 of them. And then you get past that, and you go to the next case, and what do you got? Diamonds, sparkly. Jewelry. Watches with sparkly diamonds. And all of it catches our attention. And then you get to the furniture, after you get to the cell phones, and then you start getting into the fruit. No one really cares about that except for Robin. Robin, she could spend all day there. <laughs> she, she would be like a bear going into hibernation, hyperphagalia. That's what she would be. She'd be in that, oh, give me the mango stage. That'd be where she'd be at. There's a reason we call her Godis. Now, now, what we're doing here, what we're doing here, have you noticed the process that's taking effect right now? I started with one example, and I've now drawn us away entirely from the point we were trying to make. Have you seen that? Do you notice that? Right now, instead of thinking about something shiny catching our attention, what we're thinking about? Robin eating mangoes in the Costco section of produce. And, it's, and you see how easy it is to lead us away from the original point or the original focus to something else. There is something outside of what God is providing us that says, Come and get me. Choose this. Choose me. Come and have me. The other word here, enticed, daily odds of manos. Means to bait. It means to bait something. To put some bait in a trap. Now, the bait is the shiny object. It's that asterisk thing over here on the side that says, hey, you got to deal with me. You want me. You see me. you got to deal with it. Say yes, no, take me. That's what you want. That's what the idea here is. Now, this is all under the uh, agency or authority Greek word for that's translated as by is actually hupo, and it means under the agency or authority of something, of your own specific lust pattern. 
own here is from the Greek word idios. It identifies your specific thing. Something that is yours particularly and no one else's. Specifically yours and no one else's. It's unique to you. Now what is the thing being referred to? Your lust. Epithumios. Now we're getting somewhere. This is your desire to consume. Desire to consume what? Well, it's either in sensuality, materialism, or pride or ego, however you want to term it. And if you pick one over the other, you might be in that category. So you can take and put in that blank space whatever your dominant lust pattern is. That's where you will be baited. Because you're baited towards this trap under the agency of the lust pattern you possess. So God does not tempt us, but Satan and company bait a trap for us that appeals to our sin nature. And our sin nature says, we got to look at that and deal with that. And that's all we have time for this evening. We'll finish up this verse next week and move into verse 15 where we get the other part of this process. But at this point... If you're in this point of a temptation with something that's shining that's catching your eyes, you have not yet sinned until you've chosen to accept it and take it. Temptation is not sin. What you do with it can be. If we accept anything besides what God is providing for us, anything that's not directly responding to what He is giving us, it's sin. It's inherently worthless, no matter what good it looks like or how we can justify it. Let's pray.